The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts. We've taken a couple weeks off, but we're back. I'm joined today by Jeff Luke, Associate Principal Trumpet of Utah Symphony. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. We are really glad to have you. We've talked to Travis Peterson, your partner in crime in the trumpet section, so we know a lot about... Great player. Yeah. Well, you are too. We'll get to that. We know a lot about your section, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your pre-Utah Symphony life, which I think is really, really interesting. You were a member of the Atlantic Brass Quintet. How many years were you in that group? It was 13. 13. Years, years I was with the Atlantic Brass. It was a lifetime ago, and it was an entire career. Absolutely. Truly, truly. So I, I want to talk about touring in a second, but first talk about how the life of a professional quintet player differs from your life now. It's got to be well, a very different world. I mean, it's, it's the same trumpet, but... It's the same trumpet, but it's, you know, you're on the road. Yeah. You know, you're touring. Yeah. You're seeing exotic places. Yeah. You know, for me, it was a dream come true because I just wanted to be paid to play the trumpet. Sure. You know, and I was in graduate school at New England Conservatory when I got hired on for the Atlantic Brass Quintet. Yeah. So we put ourselves on the map by winning this competition in in south of France, Narbonne. Right. Talk about that. That, That's 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 the thing that kind of made you guys. That's what catapulted us. There are 18 groups there from Uh all over the world, Uh Italy, Russia, England. Yeah. France. Several rounds or is it just several rounds? Yeah. Three rounds. Okay. And they ended up recording a live CD of us after that. And, you know, just that they had already established themselves before I got to the quintet. Sure. But that big one was what, you know, then we had Columbia Artists Management. We were, we were touring, we had recording contracts. We ended up with a residency at Boston University. We spent, you know, two months every summer out at Tanglewood teaching. And so, for us, having been put on that tier, uh, was glamorous. You mentioned the touring, so let's let's go there. I mean, you did a lot of it, I know, over those thirteen years. Tell us about your favorite spots. Any great stories from the road? Oh man, sounds like you were in a rock band to me. Well, you know, if you consider the audience <laughs> of a rock band, you know, you know, if, if, compared if, to a symphony audience, maybe. Well, you yeah. know who Joe Perry is, right? He's, sure. Guitarist of Aerosmith. Right. Well, I met his mother at one of our concerts. Okay. If that, you know, that's the brass that's quintet the life, yeah. man. That's the brass quintet that's life. That's the difference. You meet the mothers of famous guitarists. <laughs> you might think you're on a rock and roll tour, but you're not. But it was great. Name, um, name some places you went. We went to France, yeah. and England, and we went to Japan, Guatemala, Panama. Um, Didn't you tell me Canada, you went to the Middle East as well? We we did. You know, I brought this yeah. thing so you'd believe me. Yeah. The United States Information Agency <laughs> sent us. Yeah. You know, the State Department literally sent yeah. us to, you know, Pakistan and India, Egypt, uh, Oman, Yemen, wow. Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. We were in Peshawar, Pakistan, sure. which is a tribal region. Sure. I don't know what we were doing there, but yeah. we were playing there, mm-hmm. and. Um, we were just kind of touristing around, yeah. even though everyone was looking at us like we were from a different planet. Sure. And we saw these musical instruments, these brass instruments, hanging from hooks on a second balcony, you know. And so we thought, oh, of course, a music store. And we, we go up the stairs and we knock on the door, and it's these people's house. Oh, no kidding. And we did the international, I'm a trumpet player, finger wiggle, <laughs> and pointed at the instruments. Yeah. And they invited us in, and we, they, they gave us the instruments, and 
we didn't have any music with us, so we like improvised when the saints go marching in or you sure. know, something like that. Sure. And people were coming out of their homes cheering and clapping, and you know, they thought we were rock stars. Like, sure. And then the family played some raga. It reminded me of uh, Man of La Mancha, yeah. the gypsy scene. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was like exactly augmented seconds and things yeah. like that. Yeah. And people were like out of their houses, loving every minute of it. These people invited us to sit for green tea and bread. There was a older gentleman smoking something out of a three-foot hookah. It was just once in a lifetime. So how did those far-flung parts of the world respond to the concerts that you gave? You know, were uh, they well-received? One time when we were in, I can't remember, one of the countries that has called to prayer, either Saudi Arabia or, sure. or Pakistan or sure. some, one of those places, we were playing a concert and the bells went off. Hmm. Everyone from the audience left. And really? we were s- sitting there like, uh... Not one person. Yeah. And then so we just kind of hung around, and sometime later they all came back. Incredible. And what struck me about the audiences over there not having heard Western music was they applauded at any time they wanted to. If, sure. if it got loud or exciting or fast, and they cheered, and you know, it was so free. And yeah. you know, they responded. Yeah. They loved it. Oh, it, it sounds was like fun. Absolutely amazing experience. It was, it was the best. It sounds like you saw some parts of the world that, frankly, would be a little difficult to get to now. I would agree with that. Which, you know... That was, are, it was 95 ex- when yeah. we were there. Those are experiences that I'm sure you're going to carry with you the rest oh, of your life. Yeah, Incredible. never forget them. So let's talk a little bit about when you came to Utah Symphony. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm wondering if when you were preparing to make the switch from chamber music to a symphony career, did you have to make... Any changes to your playing style, your equipment, just your your mindset? I mean, what was that process you like? You know, for me, it was mindset. I was always sort of considering myself an orchestra guy in brass quintet clothing. Uh-huh. I was playing in the Tanglewood Music Center Orchestra and happened to be in the Honors Brass Quintet at New England Conservatory. So yeah. I feel like I had a choice from the get-go. But I think because of that, I never got small for the quintet. Sure. You know, and I'm not really big for the orchestra either. Yeah. But I, I play standard audition equipment yeah, think, yeah, yeah. to this day. Yeah. And by small uh, and big, you're talking about equipment. Equipment. Talking, yeah, equipment right, and right. sound. You know, I, sure. I'm a medium down the, down the line type of, type sure. of player. But, you know, for me, it was mindset. It was those darn auditions. Yeah, man. Because when you're playing quintet concerts, you're playing 20 concerts a month out on the road. Right. You know, you can see the faces of your audience and you can tell if you need to play more exciting or if you're too loud or you can read what's going on there. Yeah. And you get to the orchestra audition and there's a screen. You can't see anyone's faces. You have no idea what's going on back there. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I changed my mindset. It was it was it felt contrived. It felt uh, out of place for me to play an excerpt of something that didn't have any music along with it that should. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started doing mental work, and I got to where I could hear the music that I was supposed to be playing with, and then I could sort of play along with my imagination, and that's when my audition experience changed. So a chamber music experience, but with your own head. As that's the, right. Yeah, that's, Absolutely. I wish you'd told me that about 20 years ago. <laughs> I'd, I'd be a horn player somewhere, uh, not doing podcasts. Player. I'll give but that. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So... One thing that people may not know about you is that you're not just an excellent performer. You also do a lot of arranging for brass ensemble, I which do. I think is great. I mean, was that something you did for the quintet when you were there? Where would you learn how to do this? You know, I, I did it on the fly, yeah. and I, I wrote most of the things we played for 
five or six of those years. Really? So the bulk of the material. The bulk of the materials. From, wow. And I, you know, I programmed it together as well. And you know, we would also play compositions. You know, we tried to be a serious chamber music group, if yeah. possible, yeah. Uh, for a brass quintet anyway. And you know, where I where I feel I learned that was, you know, you know my father, but you know, my father, uh-huh. uh, he had a doctorate in music theory yeah. and composition yeah. from Eastman School of Music. Mm-hmm. And I originally was going to Oklahoma City University before I moved to Boston and went to New England. And, uh, you know, I'd have theory class five days a week for two years in a row. And I'd walk by his office every single day yeah. to get to that class. And I'd go in and say hello and ask, you know, hey, well, how do you do this? What's going on here? And literally he taught me theory before I got to my theory class. What an amazing access. Yeah. I mean, another thing people may not know is that your, your father's composition career, you've shared some of his work with me, and it's fantastic. I mean, talk a little bit about what he did and how that Well, his, his career, I mean, yeah. he, was, he was a very optimistic, why not me type of guy. Sure. You know, he didn't ever feel like he was an underdog in any way. Yeah. And it was 1969, he sent his piano concerto to mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth of Belgium, mm-hmm. International Composition Competition, mm-hmm. wins the thing, yeah. Premier Prix. Incredible. Puts him on the map. Sure. 1969. And, you know, he was excited and, and was, was really happy about it, but he wasn't necessarily surprised. And, you know, on down the line, it was like, I think it was 1978, he won the Rockefeller Foundation as well uh, for his opera, Medea. And so he's, he wrote a lot of, you know, I, I was looking him up, just to make sure I didn't misspeak, but he has 83 opus numbers, you know, four, four of which are, you know, symphonies and, and a full opera, two one-act operas, numerous, numerous chamber music and concerti. You know, he, he wrote for a living. It's no surprise then that you're good at this because you're obviously the proverbial apple that fell right next to the tree. I well, mean, you kind of had no choice. I learned by, you know, <laughs> osmosis maybe. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and he, he, was, he was teaching me, you know, even, even when I didn't realize it. Yeah. You know, he was teaching me work ethic just by his... Just by doing it. Just by his work ethic. Sure. You know, he's down in his office yeah. all day long writing music. You know, I've heard... A lot of your dad's music, I think it's fabulous. I think there's there there needs to be a renaissance for his career. We need to. We need I hope to, so. People need to know about this music. It's very powerful. You know, without without Facebook and you know, yeah, without he, you know, he most of his music was written by hand. Yeah, you know, you know manuscript. I still yeah. have some quills and ink. Sure, sure. You know, is there any online resource where people can hear your dad's music? You know, not yet. No, okay. I I should put one up because okay. I have. You know, he was lucky and had. Almost all of his orchestral works yeah. performed. All of his works, really. I have recordings of just about everything. If you do it, let us know. We'll tell everybody okay. about it on the Ghostlight Podcast because I want to do what I can to get people to hear his music. I want other fans to join me. It's it's a lot of fun to listen to. It's he, great stuff. I feel like he was he was great. So we're both musicians. We both became musicians. But I wonder what you would have been if you had your choice and the trumpet wasn't an option, okay. what, what would you have done? Because I know my answer and I suspect yours is the same. Now, let me ask you this. Okay. Does it have to be something that I know I could have pulled off? Not at all. Okay, then baseball. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I've been to the cages with you. I, uh, you have a good swing. We, I, uh, we, both, we both were good enough to have the aspiration. That's right. Yeah. I, I played until I was 18 years old. I played, you know, I played, I played up until high school. Yeah, yeah, I played through high school and yeah. after high school. Yeah considered 
playing in college because yeah. all my teammates yeah. went and played in college. Yeah. But, you, you know, you realize that you're in Oklahoma and you're not being recruited by the Big 12. Sure. You know, and sure. you're being recruited by every musical organization yep. out there. Yep. The, the world's sending you a, sending you a signal. Yes. Yep. I really did have a, you know, an inkling to yeah. walk on to the team at Oklahoma City University. It was a very good team, yeah. an NCAA yeah. team. And, you know, my father said, you should if you want to, but don't expect to be a trumpet player because, right. you know, they're gone all the time. Music takes a lot more credits than a lot of other sure. things. You have to practice and you really do have sure. to get good at some point. I think, I think wanting to be and actually starting out as a baseball player might have had something to do with your success as a musician because the ability to focus and practice in that way. Right. And they have to be related, right? You have to be in the moment. Yeah. You know, you can really get hurt standing Absolutely. in the batter's box. You Absolutely. Know. Or playing shortstop or anything. That's right. I've played catch with Jeff many times. He's still got an arm, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Don't let him kid no. you. All right. One last question, yes, Jeff. Yes, you got it. And um, I, we ask this of everybody because of the name of our show. Have you ever seen a ghost? Wow. Tell well, us. you know... I have to be honest, I mean, I've never been one to believe in ghosts, yeah. but I have been spooked badly. Tell us. I was at Tanglewood one of my summers. We were in an old farmhouse. Mm -hmm. It apparently was part of the Underground Railroad at one point, and there was a grave-looking stone there, and you know, inside there were all these pictures of Civil War young men yeah. who you know were killed. Met a bad you end. You know, yeah. And, you know, it felt like, you know, they were watching you as you walked by. And, yeah. But, but something specific happened. We had a few pounds of ground beef, and it was thawing on a very tall counter. Mm -hmm. And I had a basset hound, mm -hmm. 60 pounds, couldn't get in a chair. And there were no <laughs> chairs. And we got home, and that meat was all over the house and eaten wow. and, you know, throw up everywhere. And, no you know, kidding. the gone and there is no way that dog could have gotten up there so some little ghost kid from the 1860s fed your dog i'm thinking but but the worst part is i'm up all night with do you know who sam palafian is of course Empire. tuba player from the empire brass yeah. and and he had to write a quick arrangement yeah and i had already developed some finale ability the music sure. software sure he was standing over my shoulder at you know till four in the morning writing an arrangement yeah. out of his head and having me type in rhythms for an entire orchestra no kidding. And it was a great experience in itself. But there was a thunderstorm, and my wife was asleep yeah. across the way. And, you know, after Sam left and I was still left to do the parts, the door creaked. And she came out, and I looked over. She was coming out to see what in the world I was still doing up. And then I went back to bed, mm -hmm. you know. And another time, the door creaked, and she came out to, you're still up, you know, and went back to bed. And then the third time, the door creaked. And I looked over, and the door was still closed. What? And she was still asleep. And I, every hair on my body stood up. Mine is right now, you too. Know, it, was, it was the creepiest thing ever. I have to tell you, Jeff, we've heard a lot of ghost stories on the Ghost Light Podcast. Really? And so far, the most popular location is Tanglewood. No way. We've heard at least three ghost stories about Tanglewood. No kidding. That yeah. is crazy. Well, Jeff, Luke... Thank you so much for being on the show today and talking about your quintet life. And it's, it's been great to have you. Anytime. I really loved it. Thanks for having me. Someday she'll come, she'll come along. The one you love, she'll do your Spend wrong. an evening she'll with Portland's favorite little orchestra when Pink Martini joins the Utah Symphony with Lawrence Lowe, conductor. March 21 at Abravanel Hall. For tickets, visit utahsymphony.org. 
The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 